Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by ExpressVPN and Eero. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Jason Snell. Hello, Stephen. We're back for another fortnight of space things. Yes. How are you? I'm good. How are you, how are you this late August day? Uh, doing great. Doing great. Uh, it's that time of year where uh, a very special thing happens on our podcast network, Relay FM. Do you want to tell the good people about it? I do. So every fall, uh, we set aside some time to focus on and raise support for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Each year, between 180,000 and 240,000 children are diagnosed with cancer, and treatments invented at St. Jude have helped push the overall child cancer survival rate from 20% to more than 80% since it opened. That is a huge impact, and St. Jude won't stop until no children die from cancer. You can support St. Jude's life-saving mission of finding cures and saving children during Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. That's September. It's kind of why we do this. Uh, by visiting stjude.org slash relay. Uh, you can donate there. We're also doing a lot of fun stuff. So as we hit certain levels of fundraising, certain things happen. Mm. We're doing live streams. And it all sort of comes to a head on Friday, September 18th from 2 to 8 p.m. Uh, Mike and I are going to host. It's a video show, a six-hour podcast-a-thon. A bunch of your favorite Relay hosts will be there, including Jason. So it's going to be a lot of fun. But we would love if you go to stjude.org slash relay and help support this mission. Yeah, it's very important. We raised a lot of money. We're going to do it again. The podcast-a-thon should be fun. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, we're going to, we're gonna, let's do it again. Let's raise more money for this great organization. I'm sure most of our listeners know, but your family is a St. Jude family. So you've seen firsthand how great yeah. St. Jude is and uh, what an important and I mean, it's just kind of an amazing mission. The whole thing, you said it, is St. Jude takes care of kids with cancer and is researching cures for childhood cancer. Like, there's no catch. That's what it is. That's what it's all about. And that's <laughs> yep. why they need our support. Yep. So go check it out. We would we'd really appreciate it. Yeah. You know, all this time talking about technology as we do in our, our lives, I, I, you know, you describe a, a mission like that and then you're like, well, what's the catch where they do something evil in order to make lots of money? And the answer is there isn't one. <laughs> it's not a tech company. It's okay. <laughs> all right. So let's move into some space news. How's that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's why we're here. We should do that. We should. There's a lot going on. There's uh, there's a lot going on just this week. Uh, so mm-hmm. let's start by talking about very busy space flight week. There are, uh, at least now on Tuesday the 25th, there were three launches planned. Uh, you know, things can slip. But uh, where we are today, there's two SpaceX missions and one ULA mission set for this week. Uh, United Launch Alliance is slated for Thursday. It was going to be Wednesday. They pushed it back 24 hours its payload is secret, but it belongs to the National Reconnaissance Office, so totally a spy satellite, right? There's like, uh-huh. there's not much mystery with the NRO. We don't know exactly what it does, but like, it's a spy satellite. Well, that yeah. is it. The, mis- the mystery is exactly what it is, Yeah, but there's no mystery as to generally what it is, right. which is a spy satellite. <laughs> yep, spy satellite. Um, and that is going up on the Delta Four Heavy, which is ULA's big rocket, its biggest it will be the, only the 12th flight of this rocket. I knew it wasn't flown super often, but I didn't realize this was only number 12. And there's only four more scheduled, and then it will be retired. The remaining launches are all in our row. 
uh, where they want to put these uh, totally spy satellites, it requires a heavy launch vehicle, and ULA has done that for a long time for NRO. The Air Force uh, will take con- or bids from ULA and SpaceX in the future to compete for these launches. Um, so, you know, maybe some more Falcon Heavy launches one day. Uh, ULA is also working on, on new heavy rockets. So uh, we're going to see this one retire in a few years. But, you know, spy satellites, got to gotta love them, right? Uh, I guess. Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> sure. And on Friday, uh, SpaceX will be launching a Falcon 9 carrying uh, SEACOM 1B. It's, an Argent- it's Argentina's radar... Observe, observation satellite. You didn't want to say Argentinian or Argentine, Ar- Argent- did you? Argentinian observation radian satellitean. Wow. It's it's twin. Let's go for it. It's twin was launched from Vandenberg into polar orbit. And you may be thinking, well, Stephen, you can't get into polar orbit very easily from Florida. Uh, why isn't this happening at Vandenberg? So it turns out this Falcon 9 is going to make history it's going to be the first rocket launch from the Cape since 1969 to fly on a southerly course. So it, just like Vandenberg out uh, on, the, on the Californian coast, it will fly. Uh, it flies. Does it fly north or south? I totally blank. Uh, it flies south, well, I think. Vandenberg is yeah. straight south. This this is going to be a, a uh, south southeast launch. Yeah. Because you got to miss the rest of Florida. Yeah, right. Because at the at Santa Barbara, where Vandenberg is, you can go straight south of there and not hit any land until Antarctica. So that's why they do it. But here, it's a little bit trickier to from Florida to do this. So it's going to uh, launch, and then it's going to basically turn south and uh, deposit its, its payload, this weather satellite, uh, to be in a polar orbit. So this is a, a, a cool move for SpaceX. Hasn't been done in a long time. And it'll be neat to see the Falcon 9 be able to do this. And yeah, something special. I haven't had this in a really long time. I'm excited to see it. Yeah, definitely. And then on Saturday, just a day later, SpaceX is planning to launch its 12th installment of the Starlink satellites. We've talked a lot about those, how there's real concerns with observation from Earth-based telescopes. And they've tweaked these Starlink satellites again and again, try to bring their reflections down. They've already launched 653 of these uh, across 11 flights. They're doing a lot of these launches, and uh, this will be another batch of them, and that'll be Saturday. So as of right now, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you can watch uh, watch launches. It's going to be fun. We should talk about the launch that's already happened, though. Yes, tell me about this. This is this is really cool. I, I'm a fan of recycling. Stephen, are you a fan of recycling? Of course. You have a recycle bin? Yes, I do. You recycle your glass and your and your aluminum cans and mm-hmm. your plastic and all those things. Nobody likes recycling more than SpaceX, as we know. <laughs> uh, because they have a, a fleet of used cars, I mean rockets, that they launch into space because that's the great thing about landing that uh, that first stage back on Earth is that you get to reuse it. And the news from last week that I think is just worth noting is that a Falcon 9 launched some stuff and, you know, and landed back on a drone ship, whatever, yeah, right? T- that's totally just commonplace now, right? Like it's, uh-huh. <laughs> it's amazing. The most amazing thing about it, though, is that this was the sixth launch Whoa! for that Falcon 9. Six times they need to... I, I think SpaceX's next product, some uh, rocket cleaner, just mm. like uh, 
like a Windex for rockets where you can like squeegee down because <laughs> it's a little sooty. I'm just saying it's a little it's a little blackened, a little charred from the six launches that it's done. But uh, this is pretty amazing because th- the truth is we have guesses. SpaceX has estimates, but nobody actually knows how reusable these boosters are how and when the cost to refurb them becomes unreasonable right when when do they fall apart or it's too much effort and i'm sure that spacex has a lot of ideas but still they're also kind of proving the point by launching a a booster for the sixth time so this is fascinating because in the end the the answers to these math problems that we haven't entirely solved yet are going to tell us sort of what the what the ultimate sort of uh, lifetime cost of building a booster is, and that affects the price of access to space. Now, these super used Falcon 9s, you said they're they're like gross looking, they're all charred up. That's because SpaceX doesn't take the time to repaint them between right, launches. It just adds cost, just adds more cost and time, and, and that's not what they're all about. Right. That's why I'm saying they need to get some rocket cleaner and a squeegee and like find the... Anyway... Or don't. It's fine. <laughs> that or- weird orange space shuttle uh, main tank was fine. They didn't need to paint it white. So right. I guess we've learned our lesson is ugly rockets are fine. They launch just as well, and they're cheaper. Yeah, they do. Um, and a lot of these later missions for these Falcon 9s are Starlink. So they're not necessarily putting customer payloads on a lot of these fourth, fifth, sixth launches yet. I think as they right. do more of these, they'll be more confident and they can sell those launches at a discounted price, I'm sure. Right. I mean, yeah, you get the, you get, if you're launching on a beater uh, rocket, <laughs> you get, you get a, you get a deal down at, down at a, a wacky Elon's house of rockets or whatever it is. But for now, they're their own client, right? They're, they're, they're like, well, you know, if it blows up, it's our satellites that blew up. And, right. But they're proving the point, which is that they mm-hmm. can, they can stretch these out. And who knows? I mean, they may find that after 10 launches, um, it's too much. And that eight or seven or six is a better number. Or they may find that um, their refurb program is so great that they can really stretch out the the life of these things. We just we just don't know. But I think it's a real milestone that they have now gone for six. And we'll we'll see where they go from here. I would imagine that SpaceX would call a number based on the refurbishing process before, hopefully before one would explode. Right. You don't want that to be the cutoff point yeah i would hope that whoever and and i'm fascinated to know this and i I don't think i've read anything about this process but i would imagine the people in charge of the the refurb of the falcon 9 like they know what these rockets are like and how they work and where their weaknesses are and what they have to watch for and presumably they are watching these things like this one now that they've got it again after six launches like what are the weak spots and and hopefully at that point somebody's like all right here's what's bad on this thing now. Here's what it'll cost to fix. Is it worth it, right? But mm-hmm. then again, it's building a whole new first stage is way more expensive than a lot of repairs. But like to extend my used car metaphor even more. Yes, please. There does, there does come a point where you, you know, you don't want to fix that transmission in that car with 120,000 miles on sure. it, right? Like there comes a point where repairing this thing isn't worth it you the cost you put into it it's at the end of its life you'd be better off just buying you know a new car or a a used car a more lightly used car or rocket in this case so i i just you know we'll find out this is one of those exciting areas where we just don't actually know what the lifespan of these things is going to be and in the past elon has mentioned the number 10 
but looking for that now, that's been quite a long time ago where he said, you know, we're kind of aiming for right. 10 launches of rocket. I remember when he said at that the time- That was an Elon Musk number, right? Yeah. And it was, it was, it was a boast. At the time it was like, oh, this is a ridiculous number that's not true. And now right. I think they're not talking about it because they've left the- the you know SpaceX. There's the early period where Elon Musk makes up all sorts of numbers, and people go ooh, and then other people are like, what? Really? Yeah. <laughs> and then you enter like the realm of 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 reality, <laughs> where they're not talking about it because they don't know, and they've got some dreams, but they're also actually like doing the work and doing the math, and you know, and I I mean I joke about Elon Musk, but like I think there's value in him like thinking big, obviously, but um, when he says ten times back then, I think he was thinking big, and now. Now we're in the reality of like, you know, they're going to make an unglamorous decision at some point after launch number eight, where they're like, the the thingamajig is not holding up and we're going to have to completely replace it. And there's some questions about the overall structural integrity and somebody will say, okay, let's cut it. That's yeah. we'll retire this one. And, and maybe they try it again and they get to that same place again. And they're like, oh, this just happens after seven or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they'll learn. And they'll and they'll figure it out, but but nobody really knows. Nobody knows, but it's exciting. I mean, it's it's wild to think that that number. We talked about it on liftoff. We're like, that seems really ambitious, and here we are. <laughs> here we are. <laughs> here we are. Six six launches in. Um, pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. good. So come on down to the lot, pick up a used rocket, and mm-hmm. uh, fire your satellite into space. With All right, let me take a break. Okay. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN lets you access the internet as if you're from a different country. Netflix has different shows and movies available depending on where you are. With ExpressVPN, you can unlock thousands of new shows and movies from streaming libraries around the globe. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast. You can stream everything in HD quality with zero buffering. Uh, I, this is hand on heart true, I live streamed to Twitch about a week ago completely over ExpressVPN, and it totally worked. ExpressVPN is available on all of your devices, phones, laptops, tablets, anything you need. And it works with many streaming services, Netflix, Amazon Prime, the BBC iPlayer, YouTube. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. It's really simple to use. You just start it up, change your location, hit connect, and you're good to go. Right now, if you go to expressvpn.com slash liftoff, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash liftoff. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of the show and Relay FM. There's a story floating around on social media that there is an asteroid that is due to hit Earth one day before Election Day here in the U.S., <laughs> Well, you can see why that would be popular on Twitter, right? We, I really, we had it coming. So, fair, fair enough. There's some truth here, but the story isn't as dire as it seems. So, this air quotes dangerous asteroid mm-hmm. is named 2018 VP1. Classic. There is a uh, a 0.41 percent chance of crossing paths with us on November 2nd and entering the atmosphere. Of course, that sounds. Scary. I would prefer asteroids to be far away and not in the atmosphere, but it's actually pretty small. So it's only about two meters or six and a half feet across, making it pretty small, like a, you know, like a tiny little clown car size. And <laughs> it would completely disintegrate if it, if it makes it to the atmosphere and hits it. Uh, much bigger things 
burn up in the atmosphere with no problem. 2018 VP1, not a threat to us here on Earth. Well, that's a relief. Yeah. Yeah. But you can see, I want to talk about this because you could totally see why this would be popular, right? It's like the timing is sort of funny and dark. And I think a lot of people think about asteroids as all big, really dangerous things. And the truth is there are many, many million tiny little asteroids in the solar system. And yes. even if they get near us, the or, or even if they hit in the atmosphere, they're not going to make it to the ground. They're just too small to withstand the heat of entry through the atmosphere, which is good. It protects us from many things, including small asteroids. But we did have one of those small visitors recently whiz by us. Oh, boy. Uh-huh. Um, a small asteroid about 10 to 20 feet across. Again, this is not a unique situation that happens several times a year. What's special about this one, it's the closest pass that didn't end up in the atmosphere, coming within about 1,800 miles or 2,900 kilometers to uh, to the planet. So close, but not in the atmosphere, um, which is why this is news. Normally, this would just come and go. No one would really notice or care. It, too, would have burned up really, really small. Um, but these small ones are hard to spot, right? You think about something that's only 10 or 20 feet across, very difficult to see. In fact, this wasn't even seen until after it was leaving us. After it had passed us by, it was spotted. So it is, uh, again, not a threat. These small asteroids happen all the time. We're not going to be hit by an asteroid that, that wipes us all out the day before Election Day. Okay. That's good, I guess. Feel, you feel better? Sure. Let's say yes. <laughs> Let's say yes. I don't want to get hit by an asteroid. It's fine. I don't either. I guess vote early is the lesson here. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Sure. Because sure. then sure. you will know you have voted before the asteroid comes. That's right. <laughs> and it's not going to come. So don't worry about it. I have a similar, well, I don't know, a, a, a another tale of po- possible but not destruction to share with you, Stephen. Okay. Um, that hissing sound you hear is a leak in the International Space Station. <laughs> Sounds bad. Yeah, uh, it's actually been happening a while. It's been almost a year that there is that this has been going on. It's a, an extremely slow leak, but you know, a leak of your air into space and the International Space Station is not great. The, the news is that this weekend, this coming weekend, they're shutting all the hatches and staying in the Russian Svedza module. And they're doing this to try to figure out where the leak is coming from so that they can fix it. So there is a, they thought there was a leak. It's actually hard to tell um, because you've got like spacewalks and dockings and stuff, which, Mm -hmm. which will lose atmosphere via airlock or, or a docking where they're bringing in their own atmosphere, but they're also losing, like it changes the composition. You need the, the atmosphere to be kind of like settled in order to really make these measurements, but they, they're pretty sure there's a leak. Um, it's not that big a deal because they just add nitrogen from the reserve tanks to maintain the pressure, but it is a slow leak and they'd like to plug it. It's within specifications. There's no danger, but it, they're they're doing a batten down the hatches kind of thing in order to separate the different modules so that they can get a better measurement of sort of like, where is this coming from so that they can fix it? So the, the three guys who are up there right now on the ISS are going to hunker down in Svedza and let the sensors, I don't think they even have to do anything for this. They're going to let the sensors do the work, and then the people back down on the ground will look at the sensors and see if they can nail down exactly where this is coming. Uh, I hope it's not beam 
Oh no. <laughs> I like that little inflatable guy, a little inflatable closet they got there. I don't want I hope it's not that one. Company's mostly gone, so uh that would be sad. Yeah. Yeah, and they want to do it with a crew of three uh before another crew dragon arrives with more people because you can fit three people in that little Russian module way easier. And so they can shut everything else off and and try to find it. But yeah, I, I this was another thing I saw, I think on like my Twitter space list was like this sounds bad. It's not bad. They're going to figure it out. And, you know, these things happen over time. It does look like the leak rate has slightly increased, but it's far from any sort of danger level, right? They don't expect any real problems. They'll, they'll find it. They'll be able to fix it. And life will move on on the International Space Station. Yeah, it'll be fine. Maybe someone okay. like popped a window in a bathroom and it's just getting pulled out. Could be. It's probably not that. Yeah, probably not. But, you know, now they'll know. Now they'll find it out. Which module is it? Who has the leak? Leak detectives. Oh, that's good. I like leak detectives. In space. (laughs) All right, so we've got some uh, supernova stuff to talk about. Um, Oh, man. It's a super segment coming up. Wow, it is. Before we get there, let's talk about the uh, Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. Oh, sure. That sounds good. Now, you may be saying to yourself, I have never heard of you discussing a telescope called the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, because why would I? Mm-hmm. And the answer is you have. You have, but they named it. And we talked about this, that they named W first, which we've talked about a lot, yes. as the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. Now, who was Nancy Grace Roman? Just to recap, she was NASA's first chief astronomer. She is considered the mother of the Hubble t- Space Telescope. They named this telescope that is in development after her. Uh, the Trump administration tried to kill it, but uh, it failed, basically, and and uh, Bridenstine, the administrator of NASA, has sort of put it into process now. So it seems like its uh, attempts to kill it have sort of failed, and it will continue on, um, although its funding has been reduced a little bit in order to shunt some money to the finishing of the James Webb Space Telescope, basically one space telescope at a time policy <laughs> going on there. Fair, yeah. I guess. Um, it's an infrared space telescope. Uh, it's uh, the top priority on the decadal, uh, survey of scientists. Like we need to build this thing in the 2020s. Um, the primary thing it's looking for actually is back into the early universe, which is at infrared wavelengths. They're, they're, uh, trying to find, uh, it's going to cover different overlapping redshift ranges. And the idea here, um, is to understand, the effects of dark energy, which is thought to be the force that is pushing space itself apart and causing the acceleration of the expansion of the universe. And that is a whole topic that, that I think we might have touched on briefly in the past and maybe we'll get back to in a, in a, in a nearby future episode. But suffice it to say that th- there's a lot of great cosmology stuff that the uh, Roman telescope is going to be able to do because uh, it's able to look far enough back that we can sort of get a sense of what the different, you know, what the different redshift values are, measure the expansion of the universe, give us some ideas about dark energy. But there's other stuff you can do with a, an awesome infrared telescope. And the one that I wanted to bring up today is about finding planets. Because there's a new paper that is just out that suggests that this telescope should be able to find what I consider the spookiest and most exciting of planets. Rogue planets. Yeah, the, these are weird worlds, right? So unlike planets in the solar in our solar system, right, where they're orbiting around a star... We see a lot of that in exoplanets. In fact, that's how we find a lot of exoplanets. 
But rogue planets have been ejected from their systems and just wander through space alone. It's sad. They're just lonely. It is sad. I mean, you can also have rogue planets that are basically like failed stars, essentially, where there's a, a collection of gas and dust and it collapses gravitationally, but it's not. there's not enough mass there to ignite a star and you end up with a a body that it might be a brown dwarf they're often called which is like a failed star it doesn't ignite um but it could potentially be you know it's it's an object and it's not flung out of anywhere it just formed and kind of didn't go anywhere but most we it's believed that there are lots and lots and lots of rogue planets out there because all of our models of solar system formation suggest that it's very common that planets just get gravitationally flung out of star, uh, star systems in their early period and maybe even like throughout the life of the of the solar system but certainly in an early period that a lot of this stuff gets ejected and uh once a planet is ejected it just kind of goes it's space they just kind of wanders along no sun no light just the stars and it keeps getting colder and colder like i said so creepy so, so how do we see those, right? So normally we use the transiting method where we see light from a star dip yeah. on a pattern and we realize that there's a planet circling it, blocking the light from our view every so often. But these don't have stars. They're in the dark. They're cold. Yeah. How do you spot them? Yeah, so the, it, it's tricky. You actually do use stars to spot them, but it's not their stars. They use a method called gravitational microlensing. And the idea here is that the Roman telescope is going to look at distant stars. And one of the things it's going to try to do is see distortions in the light from those stars. Now, this is a function of how we understand space-time to work, which is that it's curved by gravity. This is one of those. This is the famous sort of Einstein conjecture that then they looked at a uh, solar eclipse and saw that the, the stars were not quite where they belonged in the solar eclipse, which was because the light had been bent by the... Uh, by the gravity of the sun. And so this technique allows us to see weird light effects that are caused by heavy objects that are between, or massy objects that are between us and the the light that's happening behind them. So uh, the the best example is that often you will see like a big foreground galaxy and there'll be like a ring or even like multiple objects around it multiple other galaxies around it and then when they analyze it what they find is that it's actually the light from one galaxy but it's being bent and distorted all around this other object this other galaxy uh like a lens in a camera and that it's a re it sounds weird but it's absolutely real so so gravity bends the path of light which means that it's the least worst way to spot a rogue planet because they don't shine. They're generally too cool to even spot in, in the infrared. Uh, they don't have any stars shining on them, but we can spot them by looking, and this is, seems really wacky, but it's how we do it. You look at a star and see if the light around that star wiggles. And if it does, you can actually spot that there was a rogue planet passing by between that star's light and our light that caused it to briefly distort and you only get one shot at it because they don't orbit they just are passing through so it's like hey there's a star over there do 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 rogue planet and then the star is just back on its own again and you're like well wait a second but the light and they don't have to be near each other they don't have to be anywhere near each other it's just that the light from that star is on a straight line to us and then along the way a rogue planet comes around bends the light a little bit and we can say aha 
there was a rogue planet and we can even get an idea of like what its mass was based on what that was it's pretty amazing um and 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 this is this is stuff we can do and that with the grace uh or the the nancy grace roman telescope we'll be able to do it if you think about how many exoplanets we've discovered through these other methods in really a pretty short period of time i feel like our understanding of how many planets are out there is going to increase again once this is up and running yeah th- we don't know right that that's actually why we care about this is that we don't we don't know just like we didn't know we knew there were planets around other stars right but we didn't know what they were and then ultimately we got to see with the techniques we've used in the last couple of decades and uh yes we were right there are planets around all you know m- most or all stars but we didn't know what kind of planets they were, and that has surprised us. Well, we know there are rogue planets, but we don't know how many they are, and we don't know what their composition is. We don't. We just don't know. And when you're trying to come up with a model of an early solar system and you're predicting all these rogue planets, one of the ways you get some confirmation that your models make sense is that you look out in the universe and you say, oh, there are a lot of rogue planets, and they look like this generally, and then we know. And if they look different than we expect, or there aren't as many of them as we thought, or whatever, that changes our understanding of the of of solar system formation. So there's lots of reasons that um, we want to find these rogue planets, and a lot of ways that they could surprise us. But um, in in this case, the the this whole story is keyed off of this paper from a bunch of people at a bunch of different universities, including Ohio State. Which I just do a shout out to Richard Pogge, who is the guy I I took in quotes an astronomy a bunch of astronomy courses from because he was so forward thinking that he just he recorded all of his lectures and put them on a podcast and I listened to them and he it was awesome and I learned so much about that and he's involved in some gravitational microlensing projects so I you know I sense his presence somehow in the in the Ohio State presence in this but anyway this paper says they can find rogue planets with masses as small as Mars so if you're thinking only giant planets that are wandering around are going to get spotted the potential here with the great with the uh, Nancy Grace Roman telescope is for lots and lots of rogue planets of all sorts of sizes all the way down to the size of Mars which is you know smaller than Earth so you know, there's a big range here. It's not just going to be gas giants uh, that we can spot. And that's very exciting. So another reason to get excited about this telescope, which should uh, be coming later this decade. Do we want to take our second break? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, this episode of Liftoff was also brought to you by Eero. Eero uh, is great. I use it. The your, your house, you know, is doing a lot more stuff than it used to right there are probably mm-hmm. more people more people people in it longer the occupancy rate is higher it's probably your house can be an office mine is a school mine is movie theater yes restaurant well yes we don't have guests but we 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 cook for ourselves anyway uh your house does double duty your network does double duty it puts more strain on your wi-fi um you need good Wi-Fi coverage. You don't want to have that everybody has to come to a certain room in order to get the internet. You want to be able to send your kids to their rooms to do their schoolwork and not have to have them wander into the living room in order to get the Wi-Fi strong enough to do a Zoom call. I speak from experience here. And that's why you need Eero. Eero is an Amazon company. You may have heard of them. They cover your whole home with fast, reliable Wi-Fi. They do that to my home. Um, it is a mesh network. It, it spreads your network out 
uh, to the all corners of your house and beyond, makes every square foot of your house, in my case, my um, my backyard, uh, usable with Wi-Fi by eliminating poor coverage and dead spots, a consistently strong signal wherever you need it. So if you're on a work call, the kids are on a remote learning Zoom, and someone else is watching video, you can do it all. Eero will have you covered. It's fast and easy to set up. Could not be easier. You plug it in. They have an app. It's easy to you know, tap a couple of things and you're up and running and you can uh, manage the whole network from there. You can even do stuff like pause the network when you're at dinner. We were watching a movie the other night and my daughter was looking at her phone and I thought, if only I had a magical switch. It's like, oh, I actually do. I could have turned off the Wi-Fi by going to the Eero app. Um, and I love the push notifications that say when devices join your network. I think that's really great because you get the sense of, you know, this thing rebooted or, you know, what device is that? Who Who's on my network now? I love it a lot. Uh, now, we're asking a lot of our Wi-Fi. Eero can help yours do more. So go to Eero.com slash liftoff and enter code liftoff at checkout to get free next day shipping with your order. That's E-E-R-O.com slash liftoff and use the code liftoff at checkout. You'll get your Eero delivered with free next day shipping. Eero.com slash liftoff. Code liftoff. Thank you, Eero, for supporting liftoff and all of Relay FM. All right, supernovas. What's going on? Supernovas. They happen. They're bad. They're good. I mean, they're good. Like all the elements, heavy elements and stuff come from them. Like we wouldn't be here without them. But uh, they're destructive. And I have a fun story to tell you about mass extinction. So, oh, good. Uplifting. <laughs> Uplifting. Where's that asteroid when you need it? Yeah. A scientist at the University of Illinois, uh, Brian Fields, released a paper this week that speculates that one of the mass extinctions in Earth's history might have been caused by a supernova, or at least could have been caused by a supernova. It's called the Hankenberg event. It marks the boundary between the Devonian and Carboniferous periods of history. A lot of the periods of history are are demarcated by events that caused a mass die-off. That's sort of the history of Earth. Uh, I've read a couple of books about like deep time and, and Earth's long time history and it's it really puts things in perspective <laughs> about how much time the earth has been here and how little time humans have been here but um these boundaries generally are defined because something cataclysmic happened and things were very different after it than before it even though these boundaries often take place over thousands of years but if you look in geological terms if you look you know a hundred thousand years to one side and they're all these animals and a hundred thousand years to the other side and they're gone and they're different animals, or a million years to either side, you're like, hmm, something happened here. Even if it happened gradually in uh, our terms, it could be a snap of the fingers in terms of geological terms. So anyway, Brian Fields suggests that this event might have been caused, could have been caused by a supernova. And there's no evidence for it. This is sort of speculation of like, let's do the research. Let's walk through what would have happened if a supernova had gone off with certain characteristics and what that might have done. And does that match what we know about the uh, the ozone layer being kind of eaten away during the Hangenberg event between these two periods in, in geological history? So supernova, as we know, Stephen, you and I have talked about it. If a supernova explodes near you, it is very bad. Mm-hmm. Like all the way bad, like 25 <laughs> light years around that supernova is what they call in a delightful phrase, the kill radius. <laughs> you don't want to be, but you don't want to be there. Yeah. So like for a, a sphere, uh, 50 light years in diameter around a supernova, 
if there's anybody like living in that sphere, they're they're gone because of the radiation and the and, and then ultimately all of the uh, radioactive uh, ions and atoms that get shot at. The, like it's bad. Don't be near a supernova. Fields' research, though, is about a supernova that's a little further up because obviously we're all still here on planet Earth. Um, his calculation is between 163 and 326 light years away. And what he found in this paper is that a supernova that far out would deplete the ozone layer around Earth in a way that is similar to what is thought to have happened in history during the Hangenberg event. Uh, basically, what happens when you're that far out is there are a lot of cosmic rays battering the atmosphere, would erode the ozone layer. And then later, if you're if you're close enough to one of these supernovas, you'd get like a rain of radioactive iron over thousands of years, just little atoms of radioactive iron trickling into your your uh, planet's system courtesy of being sloughed off by this supernova explosion. Now there, like I said, is no proof this actually happened. It's all just sort of about, would this be an explanation for this event that did happen? Uh, but what is cool about this and makes this uh, an interesting bit of science is that he is saying, here's what we would need to see in order to prove that this is what happened. And it's two elements, plutonium-244 and samarium-146, appearing in rocks deposited during this period in Earth's geologic history. If that was found... Uh, that would be the smoking gun for the supernova because those elements don't occur naturally on Earth. And if we saw them deposited in a layer at that time on the Earth, we would know that they had come from space and that the, that would be proof that the supernova hypothesis was accurate. Um, so that's kind of cool because people can look for that. And if they find it, they're going to be like, hey, there was that paper about the supernova. I guess this, you know, th this suggests that they, maybe that really did happen. Uh, my point here, Stephen, is uh, when a supernova goes off, be somewhere far away. And by far away, I mean many, many, many dozens of light years away. Hundreds of light years away is good. Just because you're out of the kill radius doesn't mean you're going to have a good time. Kill radius. That's a great term. Kill radius. I mean, it's dark, but like it, it is what it says. You got to go. You got to give it that. So to, to wrap this supernova segment up, though, I want to I want to turn to a, a, a subject a little more close to home. Uh, don't get scared, but we do have a bubbling star that is a supergiant that is probably going to go supernova, at least in stellar terms, very soon. But that's okay. It's 725 light years away, so don't be too scared. We'll be fine, probably. Possible. Yeah, probably. Sure. We'll be fine. I'm sure we'll be fine. Uh, it's uh, Betelgeuse. We've talked about it before. Remember, it, it got really dim. It's one of the stars in Orion. In Orion. And uh, the constellation, the winter constellation, and it... Uh, is usually really bright, and then it wasn't. And everybody said, is it going to go supernova now? Yep. Um, there's a new analysis out that says that what we saw was probably a big chunk of dust and gas getting blown out of the star's envelope. Remember, when a, a star is a supergiant, it is, it's got a core that is fusing heavier and heavier elements together. It's a sort of this runaway process that eventually reaches a point where it can't fuse a heavier element. All the fusion stops, and then there's a a giant explosion because it can't it, it it sort of implodes and bounces off and explodes and that's a supernova, but out in the envelope of the star it's just this loosely held together kind of gas. It's it, Betelgeuse is enormous. It's out to the 
orbit of Jupiter, I want to say. Like, it's it's a huge star. It's so big that 725 light years away, we can see its surface. It's a disk and not a point in telescopes. Like, it's huge. And the feeling is, generally, what happens out there in the gas envelope is not really related to what's going on at the core. The fusion at the core is happening, and that's what's going to lead to the supernova. But everything that's happening in the visible space of a star like this is the dynamics of having this loose, bubbling uh, gas envelope on the outside. They're not really related. Then again, we've never looked at a potential supernova for so long, so close before. So we don't actually know if there are particular traits that are the harbingers of the explosion to come. We we don't know if there's a, a dimming effect that is followed by the explosion. We, we have no idea. So people were like, well, it's probably not related, but it is interesting. Uh, the study suggests, though, that actually based on our position uh, and and, and some analysis of the light coming from Betelgeuse that, uh, and there's a neat illustration about it, like that basically there was a dust cloud blown out of the stellar envelope and then it cooled, which meant it got darker. It's, it's blocking the light from that part of the star. It's actually only part because we can see the whole disc. It, we could, we could only part of it was getting covered up by this. You could see that the dimming wasn't on the whole disc. It was just a little part of it. And, the logic there is that basically if we had been at a slightly different location, we wouldn't have seen the dimming. And a slightly different location, we would have seen completely dimmed because it's just a matter of the angle of where that dust cloud was blown off. And it was kind of toward us, but not totally toward us. If it was right at us, it would have covered the whole disk, but it was like a little bit down and from there. So we, we kind of got part of the cloud covering the disk and not the rest of it. So fascinating that we can do this with a, that's 725 light years away. Um, but anyway, the, the Betelgeuse is going to have a really bad day at some point here. It's going to be very, very bad. But uh, this probably had nothing to do with it. It's just uh, another thing that a dying star does uh, independent of its ultimate fate, which we know. One thing I really loved in the New York Times article, there's a paragraph explaining like the life cycle of stars. And in this paragraph, once the core of the star becomes solid iron... The star will collapse and then rebound in a supernova explosion, like you talked about, probably leaving behind a dense nugget called a neutron star. Yeah. A dense nugget. Space space, space nugget. Yeah. Neutron stars are super weird. Mm-hmm. A lot of super weird stuff there. But also, yeah, all those healthy elements are synthesized during that process. Like, And it's fascinating because the iron, you know, and we talked about this in a previous episode, uh, and shout out again to uh, Rich Pogge, who did a great lecture in his his podcast class about this um you know nuclear fusion just keeps going and there's so much there that it just it, it in these huge stars that they keep synthesizing heavier and heavier elements you know our sun's not going to get down to iron right our sun can't can't do that it's it's got a couple of of steps at the end of its life and then it's done but these huge stars like betelgeuse can can keep going and they get to iron and they're like okay what can we fuse iron into and the answer is you can't you can't you would need the level of mass you'd need to fuse iron into something you just become a black hole at that point like there's no it doesn't that's not how that kind of nucleosynthesis works so iron is the final step and then you're done and the and and it goes what what's next there's nothing next and then boom it's all over and it's a very bad day for for uh, the kill radius. <laughs> and this is this is one of those examples of things in astronomy where it's 
it's really kind of easy to understand how light years work. This is 725 light years away. So what we're seeing happened centuries ago. Yeah. Right? It's taken this long for the light to reach us. And so we are quite literally looking, you know, we saw a dust cloud that happened centuries ago. Yeah. But we just saw it. It's, yeah. In, in 1295, 1294, 1295, a, uh, a dust cloud blew off of Betelgeuse, but we had to wait 725 years for it to get to to us and that's the that's that's one of those fundamental things that i know blows people away about astronomy which is the further away we look the further back in time we look because light has a fixed speed so we don't see the universe around us as what's happening you know now it it's what happened depending on how far away it is because that's how long it takes for the light to reach us wild stuff yeah yeah i love it love it well i think that about does it for this fortnight we've reached the uh, kill radius of the podcast, I guess. Oh, I don't like that. Uh, if you want to find links to the stories we spoke about, head on over to our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 131. While you're there, there's a link to become a member to support the show directly. And you can find us on Twitter. Jason is there as Jay Snell. And you can follow me on Twitter as ISMH. Uh, we thank you for your support of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. To learn more and to donate, stjude.org slash relay. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, y'all. <laughs>